The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by LCHF Endurance. Stabilize your blood sugar, burn fat, decrease inflammation and become fat adapted in just 12 weeks. I'm so excited to share with you that LCHF Endurance is currently 50% off for a limited time only. Simply use the code LCHFE50 to sample the program, check out the kind of meals you'll get to eat, and cancel within seven days if it's not your sugar-free jam. Head to lchfendurance.com.au and use the code LCHFE50 for 50% off your upfront program payment today. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimizing your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 248 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Senior Scientist and Research Officer with the biotech company Microba, Dr. Elena Pribble. In today's episode, we explore microbiome testing technology, how it has evolved over the years, and what makes shotgun metagenomic sequencing so remarkable. You will learn how one smear sample can tell you so much about your health, the significance of microbial metabolites, how poor digestive capacity may be explored, markers of inflammation, what it means to have high levels of human DNA identified, and so much more. Dr. Pribble is an absolute wealth of knowledge, and I hope this episode inspires you to have your microbiome tested and remove the guesswork when it comes to your health. Hi, Elena, and welcome to the show. Hi, Steph. It's great to be here. Really looking forward to our discussion today. I'd love to start with a bit of a conversation about you in regards to your studies and what you're now doing with Microba. Yeah, great. So um, as you know, I have a little bit of a convoluted career path. I originally got my PhD in fishery science, um, which probably doesn't seem like it's very well related to the human gut microbiome. But there were actually quite a few um, commonalities between what I did my research on and what I'm doing now. So when I did my PhD, I was actually working in stress physiology in fish, and I did a lot of molecular biology. That means looking at gene expression and the actual genes that are involved in upregulating the stress response. 
And when you look at the human gut microbiome, we're actually using a lot of the same molecular biology techniques that I used to use when I was studying fish. And it's just a matter of transferring the same skill set to a different organism. So it's just quite handy that way. Um, I also ended up doing a bit of a stint where I worked in science policy for a bit. And I actually really developed a passion for really being able to communicate the latest science to the people that were actually developing our policies um, and, you know, our rules and regulations. A lot of times they end up having to make decisions with not all the knowledge available to them about what the latest science is saying on a topic. And I found it was incredibly important that they are well informed. And just as policymakers should be well informed, so should the general public, because we've got a lot of really exciting research happening right now. And it's not often well communicated to people in language that they can understand. And so I find it's very important that we can try to get people understanding what's happening right now with research. It's evolving so quickly and realizing how they might be able to apply some of what we're learning to their everyday life to help improve their lifestyle and make themselves healthier. Yeah, I love that. And I've been to seminars of your, yours before and you're very good at communicating to those of us that um, are still really expanding our knowledge in this area. Um, I'd love to talk about the testing to set the scene because obviously there's been some huge changes in recent years, but could we talk about um, the metagenomic sequencing and, and how that's so different to what has been available up until now? Yes, that's great. Um, that's, this is actually the main reason why this huge uh, rapid expansion in the field of the gut microbiome has been occurring is because the technology that we have to actually measure all those different microorganisms that live in our gut has been rapidly expanding, which has now gotten to the point where we can use this technology called metagenomic sequencing to understand these microorganisms. Um, so just to backtrack a bit, um, Probably what most people are familiar with is what we've always traditionally used to study microorganisms, and that's um, something that we call culture-based methods, where we're actually taking a sample from an environment and we're sticking it into a growth medium, and we see what grows in the lab. Um, and historically, typically these are organisms that do really well with oxygen in the environment, and that ends up usually being a lot of our pathogenic bacteria, so things like E. coli and Campylobacter and Salmonella, we were able to learn quite a bit about these pathogens because they're very easy to grow in the laboratory. But what we didn't realize is that the vast majority of microorganisms that um, live within and on us are really hard to grow in the laboratory and that we weren't able to capture them at all. And so it wasn't until DNA sequencing started becoming more accessible to people that we were able to start sampling our environments. And instead of trying to grow those samples in the lab, we can actually just extract that genetic material, the DNA, and immediately sequence it and see what was in those samples. And using that type of technology, we're able to see that there's a huge amount of diversity that we never realized existed before. And that all of most, actually the vast majority of microorganisms that live in our gut were actually completely unknown until just about 10 years ago. And that's when this has been this rapid evolution of laboratories starting to use different DNA sequencing technologies to really get a good understanding of who is living in and on us. And so as those DNA sequencing technologies have been evolving, we finally kind of hit this great area where we're at, where we can use something that we call metagenomic sequencing. And this is where 
we're actually able to sequence all of the DNA in a sample instead of just using a very small portion. Um, so typically, most early DNA technologies, you're just using what they call a marker gene, which is basically like a fingerprint that can help you identify groups of bacteria. And that was really useful for us to be able to identify that there's so much we don't know. But we weren't able to really get down to that good resolution of looking at species or strains of bacteria or understanding what those bacteria are capable of doing. And so with using this advanced DNA sequencing that we call metagenomics, we're actually capturing the entire genome, all of that genetic material within each different organism that lives within us. And with that, we can now start to see, are there genes in that organism for breaking down fiber? Are there genes present for breaking down protein? Are there genes present for producing beneficial substances or more harmful substances to our health? So we can really start to understand what those bacteria are actually capable of doing instead of just knowing that they're there. Mm, and that's what I love so much about this technology. Like it's just making us, I guess, as you said, like really understanding the species that are there and, and so many more than we first thought, but not just that list, really understanding the metabolites and how this affects our health. Exactly. And this is the type of technology that's really propelling the field forward at the moment. It's giving us that level of detail that we never had access to before. And so this is where we can start to work out what are those mechanisms? Why are these different substances linked to health and how are they interacting with our body? Beautiful. And so I just wanted to clarify, because I know that some companies use the 16S rRNA. And is that what you were referring to, which is, which is just a small part of the single bacterial gene, whereas you guys are looking at obviously um, all genes? Yes, that's exactly right. So that 16S rRNA sequencing is where you're just using a very small portion of this gene that occurs in all bacteria called the 16S ribosomal gene. And so that's basically a marker gene and you can identify groups of bacteria with that gene, but that's about all you can do. You're not able to get down to that species level of resolution and you're not able to see what these species are actually capable of doing. And so that is the big defining difference is that whereas with 16S, you're looking at less than like 0.05% of a bacterial genome of all that material that's there. With metagenomics, we're looking at over about 90, 95% of that genetic material that's in a bacterial organism. Wow. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And like you said earlier, everyone's really familiar with culturing. You know, a lot of my clients are really quite surprised when they first learn that microba is just a smear because they're very used to having to, you know, package up the whole sample and curry it under the right temperature. And it's a bit of a fuss, quite honestly. Um, so let's talk about the difference in, in that, you know, obviously it's not culturing, so we can only use one smear, but yeah, how does it tell us so much? Yeah, well, that's great. It's just because there's a lot of bacteria that can be packed into that one tiny smear of poo. And when we're actually extracting the DNA from that smear of poo, we don't actually need that that much because when that just that tiny smear of poo is going to contain millions and trillions of different bacteria. And so with that, we can actually get a really good picture. And that's one of those benefits of DNA sequencing is that you don't need a whole lot of material to get a whole lot of DNA. Whereas with culturing, you do need a lot of material to make sure you're actually able to grow something up. 
Yeah. yeah. So is the smear still the, the reflection of the entire sample? That's a really great question. There have been actually quite a few studies on this. We think that getting that smear is actually going to be really close. to It's going to be fairly representative. I mean, the gold standard is if you can take the entire whole stool, mix it all up, and then take a smear. But that's probably not going to be really realistic for the vast majority of people to do. Um, there's a big yuck factor involved with that. And so the studies we've seen is that even if you're just taking a small smear, there might be very slight differences um, in different areas of the stool. But overall, those differences are very minor, especially compared to the differences you'd have between different bowel movements at different time periods. Yeah, of course. No, but I'm glad that there's studies out there because it is a question I'm starting to get quite a lot. And it is a great question because we're so used to that full sample representing the entire gut and it's such a fraction of what we're used to. So it's good to understand mm-hmm. that. Um, just to take a side step for a second um, to make sure we're giving a little bit more detail about specific terms. So I just wanted to take a moment to talk about species and strains because that might not mean um, the same to everybody that's listening, right? So we know that the Microba Insight test is looking at specific species and that's what you said has not been available up until now. Is that correct? Exactly. So when you're using like the 16S um, sequencing, that's only actually able to tell you uh, bacteria at what we call the genus level. And so when we're looking at uh, the classification of organisms, um, we actually have a lot of different levels. And so the most general level you can have is something called a phylum. And then you kind of work towards more and more specific levels. Where species is one of the most specific levels. Um, Genus is just above a species, and so a genus is like a group of species. And in some genuses, you can have as many as 100 different species, such as Bacteroides. But um, even beyond species, you can get at an even finer resolution, and that's the strain level. And that's actually something that's very difficult to currently define um, in microbiology because nobody actually has a firm definition of what a strain is. Um, but what we can do is one good way to visualize this is when you think about um, E. coli. So this is probably one of the most common bugs that occurs in our gut microbiome. But we do know that some types of E. coli, some strains, will have different genes that are going to produce a toxin that will make you really sick. And so a lot of times you'll hear about E. coli outbreaks in the news, and that's because somebody's eaten contaminated food that had one of those different E. coli species that is able to produce a toxin that was making them sick. And so basically within each species, you've got a lot of leeway where they can have different genes that are going to allow them to do different functions. And so that's when we're talking at that strain level is that there's still some variation within a species about what they can do. Yeah, and I think that's where people still get quite confused because example that you gave around E. coli, like people are familiar with E. coli being like this overgrowth in a dam or the meat that's been um, impacted by E. coli and we don't know that there are strains that are actually beneficial. Exactly. So, I mean, the vast majority of E. coli strains are what we call commensal, which means that they're really, um, they're not necessarily providing a benefit, but they're not really causing us any harm either. 
And then we even have um, a couple, we have that one probiotic strain, the E. coli mesyl, that you can actually take for a benefit. Um, and so it, it's just this huge array, and it really just comes down to um, that, that whole E. coli species. There's like a core DNA that they all have, and then these extra strains have just slightly slight variations in their DNA that allow them to do these different functions. Yeah, and that specific strain we know is great for those with chronic constipation. So that's very different than obviously that that more well-known um, pathogenic E. coli. Exactly. And this is something we need to take into account with a lot of different species as well. So we see this with um, well, another great example is um, one called Bacteroides fragilis, where the vast majority of Bacteroides fragilis strains are actually commensal. So they're not causing us any harm at all. But we do have a subset of Bacteroides fragilis strains that can produce a toxin gene that has been associated with diarrhea. Um, and so we do see this very commonly. And so ultimately, I mean, the best is if you can get to that strain level. But right now, this is still something that um, we haven't even identified all the different strains that are possible. And so we're still really, this is still an emerging area that we're really working on. Hmm. Still good to know where the science is going. I think that's really fascinating to understand that we just don't have that information right now, but hopefully we will fairly soon in the big scheme of things. Exactly. And I think that's going to definitely add a whole new level onto things as well, because it will be difficult to assess. I mean, now instead of just assessing, you know, like, do you have E. coli or do you have this species? Now you need to assess, okay, which strains do I have? And are those strains providing a benefit to me or not? Um, Microba is currently working on developing their strain level database, and we are expecting to be able to have that available in the next year or so. Wow. Exciting times. Yeah, I've actually had, just going back to what you were saying before, I've actually had, um, even just this week, two clients with the Bacteroides fragilis toxin production. So I'm starting to see that. Oh, wow. um, yeah, which is interesting because it's not something that... Um, tests I've used in the past have been able to pick up. So, of course, um, we're finally getting that further detail. So, yeah, I'm just absolutely loving the detail. And I want to learn more about the metabolites from you because obviously there's the potential to reduce health with things like the Bacteroides fragilis. But, of course, then we've got the metabolites that can really promote health. And this is what you're looking at in your um, insight test. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we're actually looking at... Um both, yeah, metabolites that can improve health and reduce health. And I think the biggest set of metabolites that are really important to focus on are just those short-chain fatty acids. Um, these are those molecules that our bacteria produce when they break down dietary fiber, and they've just been shown to have so many benefits on our gut health, such as, you know, maintaining our intestinal cell barrier, regulating appetite, suppressing inflammation, um, even promoting the production of serotonin. It's just incredible what they're helping our body do. And when you see people that have a low uh, potential to produce that, you know that downstream that can be causing or putting them at a greater risk for developing different types of diseases. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I love looking at, obviously, butyrate's the, the more well-known um, short-chain fatty acid, but we're testing all of them um, in the insight test and I love that it goes back to fiber. Like it is obviously quite detailed, but what we're looking at is the food that we're eating to feed our microbiome. And um, no surprises, it's coming back to vegetables. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Exactly. You know, something that I always was floored when I started working in this area now about four or five years ago is just that, you know, I always knew that we were supposed to eat fiber, but I never understood why. And that's what this whole field has really been bringing about is really answering that why. This is why fiber has always been part, has been such an important part of our diet is because it is, it's feeding all those beneficial bacteria in our gut and allowing them to produce these beneficial substances. And this is something that we just see being reiterated over and over and over again in the scientific literature about the gut microbiome is just how important fiber is. I mean, it plays a far more important role than anybody ever gave it credit for in the past. I know. And this is the main reason why I just can't get my head around the latest carnival craze. (laughs) I just can't understand it. Exactly. Well, hopefully people become better educated and realize that, you know, all grains are evil, that fiber is just, you know, something that we really need to make sure we never eliminate from our diet. Yeah, for sure. That's so good. Um, So let's just talk briefly about maybe a key one or two of the metabolites that you're really interested in that we know can have those, um, like the ability to reduce our health. Yeah. So um, some of the ones that are really probably the worst that you don't want to see showing up in your report um, is probably one called the lipopolysaccharides. And so currently um, in the Insight report, we're actually looking at total lipopolysaccharide production. But what we found or what the literature has found found, is that a subset of those lipopolysaccharides, um, they're called hexaacylated lipopolysaccharides, and they're produced by predominantly um, this group of bacteria called gamma proteobacteria, that these types of lipopolysaccharides actually promote inflammation in the body. So they're very active um, activators of something called the toll-like receptor 4. And this is a receptor that when it's activated, it really creates an inflammatory response. And that we know that these hexa um, lipopolysaccharides, that they actually have the ability to cross our intestinal cell barrier and enter into the rest of our circulation um, when we have diets that are really high in fat and especially saturated fat. Because our body, when we're breaking down fat, they actually produce this molecule called chylomicrons that will transport the fat that we've ingested across from our small intestine into um, our lymph and then into our blood circulation. And our body doesn't recognize lipopolysaccharides as anything different. It recognizes lipopolysaccharides as a fat molecule. And so it picks that up along with the other fat molecules that we've eaten and transports that into our body circulation. And so if we have a high potential to produce that pro-inflammatory molecule, then there's a good chance that if we also have a diet that's high in fat, that lower, a lot of that is getting into our circulation and it could be causing kind of that chronic low-grade inflammation that we see is really indicative of a lot of diseases as we age. Yeah, I'm so interested in the LPS because of that link to saturated fats. And I wanted to break this down with you a little bit, if you will, because I've had my gut analyzed and mine came back as zero. So obviously no presence of the um, lipopolysaccharide that we're discussing, um, but I do eat saturated fat. I eat grass-fed butter and coconut oil and grass-fed meats. And um, I guess what I didn't want people doing is freaking out about saturated fats again, because they do tend to get demonized. Would you agree that it's about obviously having adequate fiber, like we've been discussing? Um, and you know what I've been prescribing is you know eighty percent omega threes. So our 
anti-inflammatory fats like oily fish, olives, olive oils, nuts, seeds, avocado. And, you know, in most cases, it's fine to have saturated fat as long as it's about, you know, 20% of your total fat intake. Exactly. As long as you're not eating excessive saturated fat, I think that's the key. And the other thing is with those hexa LPS, you really only need to be really careful about your saturated fat consumption if you have them. Most people don't have them. Um, They're really the ones that you need to worry about are those ones that belong in that gamma proteobacteria group. So if you did have like E. coli or Campylobacter or Klebsiella in your gut, then you'd be producing those and that's when you'd need to be more concerned. But most people actually aren't producing them and so it's not going to be quite so necessary to be worried about it. Yeah, great. I'm really glad we clarified because I don't want saturated fats being demonized (laughs) for the millionth time this year. (laughs) Cool. All right. That's so fascinating. So metabolites are where it's at. Um, But I also wanted to talk to you about diversity because this is obviously what we know is really connected to great health and let's, let's discuss microbial diversity and um, how you measure it at Microba. Yeah, that's a great question. So Yes, microbial diversity, as you said, has had a lot of studies linking it to good health and a lot of other um, disease um, types of diseases like inflammatory bowel disease and such are actually characterized by having a low microbial diversity. And so the way that we're actually measuring microbial diversity, what that actually means is it's a measure of two different things. We're actually looking at the number of different species that you have in your gut And then we're also looking at how evenly distributed they are. And so the key, that's a really important thing to keep in mind is that you might have a huge number of different bacterial species, but if you have just one of those species that's completely dominating your gut, like maybe it's taking up 20 or 30% of all of your different species, then you would still have a low diversity because you have this one huge overgrowth. So diversity is kind of a nice indicator of, you know, do you have you know, a good number of different species, but also do you have them evenly distributed? Or you don't have any overgrowths there. So overgrowths are often what we see um, in a lot of different illnesses and gut dysbioses. And um, the reason that's not good is because all of our gut bacteria are all performing different functions. And most of them um, we see are really necessary functions. So we need like our gut bacteria to be producing those beneficial short-chain fatty acids to keep our gut healthy. We need them to be breaking down fiber. We need them to be breaking down some proteins. And when we lose some of that functionality, then we're going to be definitely having, we're going to be feeling that that loss. So like if we don't have any bugs left in our gut that can produce uterus, then we're not going to have that same ability to suppress inflammation and maintain our gut cell barrier. But if we have a whole bunch of different species and maybe 20 of them can produce uterus and we end up losing one or two of them, And that's not such a big deal because we've got another 18 that can step in and still perform that same function. Yeah, so important. I think um, what a lot of people are learning (laughs) when they get the diversity score is that they eat um, too much of the same food (laughs) because we our gut will look like the food that we eat. So diversity in our food is really important for microbial diversity as well. Exactly. That's a really important message. And I can't tell you how common we see that where when people, 
especially a lot of people end up going on these very restrictive diets. And so they're really limited in what they can eat. And they end up eating exactly the same thing day after day. And that's exactly when we start seeing these huge, massive overgrowth of a single species, because you're really just, you know, that one species is really great at breaking down that one particular type of fiber. And so it just blooms and just takes over. And you're not allowing those other species that are great at breaking down different types of fiber to grow at all. And so that's exactly when you start ending up with problems. And that's, again, why it is exactly so important to be diversifying the sources of fiber in your diet and just eating as many different types of food as possible. Yeah. And so I had um, an episode with Kirsty Worth recently about this exact topic. So I'll link up that in the show notes, but I do love that what Microba provides is exactly what foods you need to be eating to feed the strains that aren't in your gut and therefore increase your microbial diversity. Because I think for my clients, you know, as a practitioner, it's really helping sort of feed, pardon the pun, their compliance to eat some of these foods that they haven't eaten because they know that they are going to increase their diversity. So seeing that list I found to be really helpful, especially when people have eliminated certain foods for a reason when they probably didn't need to in the first place. Exactly. Oh, that's great to hear. And that's what I find very helpful too, is we're always referring people to that list and saying, you know, just try to be eating something from all these different categories. I mean, it's, it's really easy now. There's so much that's available and it's good for getting people to branch out. Yeah, definitely. And we're all guilty. I think when it comes to vegetables of just, you know, going in and and buying our staples. So it's as simple as, you know, finding what's in season ideally and adding on to what you usually buy. So that's a really helpful um, practical tool that I've never seen in um, microbiome testing before. So I do love that. So let's move on to some other areas of health. And I'd just love to get your thoughts on how Microba is looking at it and, you know, what we can and can't determine so with regards to digestive capacity, so let's talk more about how that is, I guess, related to what we're seeing in the large intestine with this um, microbiome report. Yeah, so some of the measures that we have at Insight is being able to look at you know, the number of species that you have that can break down fiber versus the number of species that can break down protein. And the reason that is really important to be able to assess is we know that when our bacteria are breaking down fiber, that means that they're going to be producing good amounts of those really beneficial short-chain fatty acids. But when they're breaking down protein, that means that they're going to be producing a wide range of different metabolites. And not all of them are going to be beneficial. A lot of them can actually end up being more pro-inflammatory or exacerbating um, different conditions. And so we really want to make sure that people have a really good number of bacteria that can break down fiber. That's the most important thing. And we don't want to see really high levels of bacteria that are great at breaking down protein. You kind of want to have that nice, even balance. Um, And one thing that's really important too, I think for everyone to realize is that our gut bacteria are always going to preferentially eat fiber over protein. And so if there's fiber available in our gut, then they will use fiber as their main energy source. And it's only when fiber isn't available that they start turning to protein and using protein as an energy source and then perhaps producing some of these more um, deleterious metabolites. Mm, So again, fiber. (laughs) Yeah, it Um, always comes back to that. (laughs) Yeah, 
Um, and so something we were talking about off air is what we're not looking at in relation to digestive, digestive capacity is obviously the stomach or the small intestine. So we're not looking at things like um, like transit time specifically or anything like, say, reflux if it's upper stomach. Is that correct? Exactly. So what we really capture with this test, since we're using a stool sample, is what's happening in the lower part of the large intestine. And so... It's not going to be assessing like your ability to digest different foods or if you have food allergies or intolerances. It can't be, we can't tell anything about that at this point in time. Um, it's not going to be able to look at SIBO or anything like that. We're really just focusing on that lower part of the large intestine. Yeah. Beautiful. Great for clarifying. Thank you. One of the functional insights that is included, at least in the metabiome testing, which is the practitioner version, is around um, detoxification. So obviously influencing um, eliminations of drugs and toxins from the body. But I wanted to understand more around if this can help us understand like liver function or what you're doing in that space. Yeah, so um, what you're referring to in the Metabiome report, um, and that's actually also in the Insight report, is the ability of our gut bugs to produce an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. And that is one that is involved in um, basically reactivating drugs that we take. And so typically when we do take um, drugs or hormones, those end up in our liver and our liver is going to basically mark those for elimination by adding on a sugar molecule, and then that gets passed. They, the liver passes that to the colon, and the colon should be excreting those drugs then. But unfortunately, when we have diets that aren't high enough in fiber and we have starving bacteria, they're going to see that sugar molecule that the liver attached, grab it off, use it as a great fuel source because it's very tasty to them, and then it leaves that drug reactivated again. So the drug can be reabsorbed through our colon and redistributed throughout the body and undergo that whole cycle again where eventually it ends up at the liver. Um, so that is something that we are able to assess, but the problem right now with that is that we have over 200 different enzymes um, that have been identified so far that gut bacteria can produce that can actually cleave that sugar molecule off. And they definitely um, specialize in different types of drugs. And so Right now, we're just giving an overall estimate of how much the overall potential to cleave off those sugars and reactivate drugs, but there are going to be, we're not able to give specifics about which drugs might be reactivated. And so that is something to keep in mind. And so it's really more of an overall general measure at this point in time. In terms of just general liver function, um, there's not a lot, you know, we're going to be able to look at some of that detoxification with that. We can also look at the ability of your gut microbiome to help eliminate oxalates. Um, and so typically oxalates would be excreted um, through, you know, the urine, but some portion of them do reach our colon. And we do see that people that are less prone to kidney stones can actually um, have higher numbers of these oxalate degrading bacteria present. And so that might be helping alleviate their risk for kidney stones. But apart from those two measures at this point in time, there's not um, much else. And so we are really, it's still an emerging field. And so pretty much we're trying to keep it on top of the research. And as new things come out, we're trying, we're going to be adding them to the report. Um, and so it's not to say that it's never going to be there. But at this point in time, um, those are the main two kind of elimination type molecules that we have available to us to be able to assess. 
Yeah, great. And um, yeah, the beta glucuronidase for me in clinic is really helpful for my female clients that are having those really high estrogen problems. So obviously it's eliminating excess hormones from the body. So we can start to look at the microbial link there and very often rebalance their hormones and mitigate any of those sort of PMS type symptoms. So I'm finding that really interesting. Oh, wonderful. That's great. Hmm. So... I want to talk a little bit more about inflammation, kind of got maybe two or three more topics. Um, Inflammation, because especially we're used to seeing like a calprotectin measure in say previous microbiome testing that we've done, um, which measures inflammation and is obviously used to diagnose things like IBD. Um, But yeah, what would be the overall best way for us to look at inflammation? Or there, there are probably a few markers. Yeah, so there's actually uh, definitely a few markers that we're looking at to assess inflammation in the gut. So we're not actually able to diagnose um, if there is inflammation, but we can tell you if there's microbial markers that have been correlated with inflammation. So a lot of that um, it comes back to some of those markers like that HEXA-LPS. Um, as we know, that one can trigger inflammation um, by our immune cells. And so that's a really key marker. But other things that we often look at, you know, again, it comes back to looking at like those short-chain fatty acids because we know those short-chain fatty acids are actually playing a really important role in suppressing inflammation. And so if you don't have a good potential to produce those, there's a good chance that um, your body isn't going to be able to suppress inflammation as well as it might. We also um, have a really interesting measure on there where we actually look at the percentage of human DNA that we found in the stool sample. So typically in a healthy person, 99% of the DNA in a stool sample is going to be bacterial. However, what we see in people that have more inflammatory diseases, such as inflammatory bowel diseases, um, celiac disease, um, clostridium difficile infection, we see that they tend to have elevated levels of human DNA in their stool samples. And that's probably because of there's epithelial cells shedding and there's, you know, inflammation occurring. And so there's this strong correlation between that percentage of human DNA and inflammation. And so if you do see high levels of human DNA in your stool, that's probably um, a good indicator that you might want to get checked out for something else happening um, in your it down there and that you might want to be going ahead and getting some diagnostic tests done for inflammation of the gut. Yeah, I'm glad you led there because the human DNA is obviously where we're looking at inflammation, but there has been some discussions around leaky gut, which is obviously inflammatory in nature, but I wanted to make sure, I wanted to get your opinion on, yeah, like it, a human DNA, to clarify, does mean like further investigation. We're not diagnosing, like you said, all leaky gut. Exactly. And that's a key thing to recall, remember with this test is that it isn't a diagnostic test. It is only for informational purposes only. It should only be used to guide your next steps. And so, again, you know, this is a really great thing where if you see that high human DNA, that's a good sign that you should be doing some further investigation. Um, you know, maybe getting, you know, a fecal occult blood test or calprotectin to make sure it's not something more serious. Yeah, beautiful. I think yeah. that's really so further investigation and then obviously supporting the inflammation <laughs> at the same time. Exactly. All right. And I'd we love do to- have other, I'm oh, sorry. And I just wanted to add on, there are a few other inflammatory markers as well that you can be looking at things like hydrogen sulfide and trimethylamine um, that have all been implicated in exacerbating or um, progressing inflammation in the gut. And so 
if you read through in the Insight Report and in the Metabiome Report, there's really great descriptions available for each of those metabolites, and it will outline which ones are involved with inflammation. Yeah, awesome. That's so interesting. A topic that everyone's so interested in. So, you know, I think that it's really great that we can get a good understanding and, and know where to go next. So I just really wanted to also um, get your thoughts on like testing as as a whole and and what you think it's going to look like in the next sort of year and even in five years' time because it is evolving so quickly and it's such a fascinating space of health and longevity. Yeah, well, I can t- definitely tell you without a doubt, within the next five years, we're going to be seeing our first diagnostic um, metagenomic test available. Um, actually, I mean, here at Microbo, we were doing quite a bit of research actually on inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and we've actually just in-house have already been able to develop um, a, a pretty good measure just using microbial stool on whether or not someone has IBD. It's only right now in the window on our research arm, but um, these are developments that are happening worldwide right now. So easily within the next five years, we're going to be seeing diagnostic tests coming out where we're going to be able to diagnose diseases like IBD using only the gut microbiome profile. I think we're also going to start seeing a lot of companion diagnostics coming out. So we're going to be able to start using the profile to be able to determine how you're going to respond to different drugs. And so a lot of people we see, especially in inflammatory bowel disease, you know, some people have responded to specific drugs and other people, those drugs aren't working with at all. And it seems that the microbiome is a really good indicator of who's going to respond to that and who isn't. I think we're also going to start seeing a lot more work on developing those precision diets because we're really evolving our understanding of how, you know, diet is influencing our gut microbiome and which diets are going to work better with specific profiles and how to really work on modulating and shifting that gut microbiome to a better state. And so we already see in clinical trials, um, they've got what they call um, crapsules or poo pills where you can actually, you know, eventually be able to have like an oral fecal microbiota transfer where you're going to be able to have, you know, a synthetic um, array of key organisms that are hopefully, you know, very beneficial and are going to be able to help shift your microbiome to a healthier state. And so those are, some of those are already in phase three clinical trials today. And so this stuff is coming on board very quickly. And I think these next five to 10 years are going to be really exciting. And we're going to see just, you know, a huge array of options becoming available to help us be healthier. I know. I'm waiting for the toilet that measures your stool every morning and spits out a report. Yes. <laughs> No, that, that, that'll be here. You can just get your microbiome sampled every time you sit on the toilet. And here's what to eat for the day. You know, I love that. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. It's been so good to chat. I could talk to you all day and I'm sure we'll have you back on the show in the near future. But thank you so much for your time today. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, wonderful. So have I. Love to talk about health anytime. thank you thanks thank you so much for listening team make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast now before you go can I ask you a favor I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. 
together we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.